privilege is something we're not often aware of. We just live with it. it just, it's like a, a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water. The key thing is about inclusive leadership, what that actually looks like. What are the, the real qualities and values of an inclusive leader? How do you develop those in yourself? Because I, I fundamentally believe we can all become more inclusive. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. One of the key questions that a lot of, uh, of our founders and a lot of people in the ecosystem are asking themselves is how to embrace diversity and inclusion. And today we have a very special guest, Pepsi Pemberton, a very good friend. And I'll, I'll have her introduce herself in a second. Um, but we're going to be talking about that very subject because she just launched a new book, The Diversity Playbook. You can get that on Amazon now, um, and it's, it's a great read. But we're going to be covering it so you can get a sense for what, what's in it uh, before you buy it, or actually after you buy it, you can double down on it. So there you go. But before we go a little bit more into Hepsi and her background in the book, I also want to take this chance to introduce one of our newest team members, Alex Lewis. Uh, he's our um, recent, he's only been in the team for four months, but he's already making a big impact, and he's our talent manager. So Alex, opportunity for you. Uh, please tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up with us. Sure. Well, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm Alex Lewis. I've been in the talent ecosystem for about six or seven years. Um, I've been an agency recruiter, um, spent the bulk of my career as an embedded consultant. Um, I've had the opportunity to get involved in scaling startups and businesses around the globe, which has been an awesome experience so far. And as Carlos mentioned, I've recently joined the Seed Camp team to help the portfolio set up the best of talent and people infrastructure right from the off so that they're effectively scaling. Awesome. Well, Alex will be guiding the conversation with me today. Uh, but before we get kickstarted on that conversation, I want uh, I would love it if Pepsi, you could introduce yourself um, a little bit about what led to the creation of this book. And, and some of the, the businesses and startups that you've helped and also your entrepreneurial background. Yeah, great. Um, well, it's lovely to be here with you today, Carlos and Alex. So thank you for the invitation. And um, so I'm Hepsi Pemberton and I'm the author of the Diversity Playbook and also the founder and CEO of Equality Group, which is my third business. It's very focused, specialist firm around inclusion, diversity and equity and how you really embed that in a business and use it as a driver of strategic growth. Very much the S in ESG, it's about social sustainability and people and driving that, all the benefits that you get from harnessing social sustainability, so greater innovation, productivity, bottom line profitability, long-term value that's built from that. And I've been working in the sort of people and talent space for Coming up to 15 years now, I started as an investment banker at Lehman Brothers. I had nothing to do with the bankruptcy. I left a few weeks before and moved to New York and worked for a search firm. And a year later, I set up my first business um, with a co-founder, um, which was Kia Consultants, a specialist search firm for asset management, and built that, grew that business over seven years. And then when I exited that business, I started a social enterprise uh, supporting female micro-entrepreneurs in Uganda. We work with over 350 women, helping them um, digitize their small businesses using mobile-first technology. 
And then I set up a quality group and that was three years ago. And since then, I've been advising businesses on this topic, both headhunting diverse leadership talent, so really boost diversity within the most senior functions, executive functions, but also consulting with firms on how do you create effective strategy? How do you capture and measure and monitor the right data? How do you build out key activities and initiatives that are going to make this part of the growth driver of a business, not just a sort of nice to have employee grassroots activity, or indeed just something that's sitting alongside HR. It needs to be much broader than that. And businesses that are having the greatest success from this are combining it across product, marketing, branding, HR, strategy. You're seeing a lot of different heads of businesses coming together and using the DEI lens, as we call it, to unlock new markets, new innovations, new talent pools, and all of that's coming together to create a lot of growth and value. And um, and I absolutely love it. It's my favorite business. It's very exciting. It's very rewarding. And it's the reason why I wrote this book. This is my first book. But there's a lot of the background and history of the work that I've been doing um, within the talent space that goes into it, as well as the specialist knowledge around DEI. Um, I'm also an angel investor. I've invested in 11 startups Um Two have been fantastic and have thankfully paid for the investments of the others. A few have failed and, and there's, you know, a handful that we still have to see how they turn out, which colors will be even more familiar with. Um, but I, I'm absolutely deeply passionate about business and about businesses' potential to really impact society in a positive way and create the sort of um, innovations that we need to see. I think in the last year, there's been um, such a spotlight on the inequalities that the global pandemic has brought. And I think business has a real chance and an opportunity to you know, level the playing fields and um, create ways of um, allowing more people into the workplace and to really harness their full potential. And I, and I love to partner with businesses that share that sort of mission. And the great thing about this sort of DEI lens is that's very aligning. You know, if you really believe in equality, diversity and inclusion, then you know we're we're going to be operating on the same page, and it's going to be a great partnership. And if you don't, we're probably not going to end up working together. And you know that's probably good for both of us. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's it's super amazing to hear your background. I I totally uh, it lapsed my mind when I was reading the book that you had been at Lehman Brothers. So the comment about Lehman Sisters uh, yes. now totally clicked. Uh, I don't know if you want to before before I go into the chapters of the book. Do you want to tell that part of the book what what you said in that bit? Yes, it's a comment on people's understanding of diversity. And I said, you know, that at the time when Lehman Brothers failed, there was some commentary in the press around if it had been Lehman Sisters, it wouldn't have failed. And my point was that a group of white women are just as homogeneous as a group of white men. And, you know, we need diversity from every perspective to really um, mitigate for that problem of groupthink and the blindness that comes in to homogeneous groups. Excellent. Well, let's get into the chapters of the book because I think you've you've set up a really good uh, structure for people to to follow and actually take action, which is is great to see in a book that is about taking action at the end of the day. And it starts off with the first three chapters, really kind of setting the tone for the the leadership driving the change, and it has to come from the top. And and you, you talk about some of the inclusive leadership traits, and you know. You, 
talk about things like positive commitment, courage and humility, awareness of bias, curiosity and active listening. I won't go through all of them. So you, you know, if you want to talk about them, you can. Right. Then you flow on to diversity, inclusion, data management and measurement. And this is, I think, an area that a lot of people are a bit stuck on um, because it is hard. It is hard, right? Like if you didn't have um, some, some sort of policy or data management or collection before, then it's like, how do I start? Where do I start? And then if you are a brand new company, maybe it's a little easier, but then it's like, at what point does it feel overwhelming? And so, you know, there's there's a, a good chapter about that. Then you talk about the actual act of hiring more inclusively. Then you move on to the inclusion diversity initiatives that you can, you can launch within a company. Then you move on to how to design the optimal infrastructure and policies to attract, retain, and develop diverse teams, which is really important because it's not just about an individual, it's about, about teams. Then you conclude the book with the the social sustainability and call to action for business leaders globally, and you know it's it's a it's a very powerful sort of uh, conclusion to the book. But one thing I also like is that each chapter has a conclusion that is is uh, a call to action because it has a series of exercises of, of audits of of sort of questions to ask yourself about each one of the subjects covered. So I just wanted to ask you quickly m- before we go into each individual section is. Um, what was what was the rationale behind this particular structure? I mean, I think structuring a book is like ha- writing half of it, right? Like, it, I find that when I when I wrote the fundraising field guide, that it was like once I got the table of contents done, it was half the battle. So maybe walk us through why this structure, and and if there's any alternative structure that you considered. Yes, uh, this structure came together really around the work that I've been doing with some key clients, so that had gone through the whole process, the advisory process about how do we do this, you know, some sort of board and management level, through to the data capture, the strategy build, uh, and obviously then redesigning the processes, the people processes from recruitment through to reviews retention. So there was already. Um, I, you know, I had a sense of the work, what actually works, and I wanted each of those parts to be in it. And then I obviously wanted it framed within the broader sustainability conversation. Um, and I started with leadership, and because it's you know you've got to have buy-in from the top. That is not to say that this topic doesn't come onto the conversation from you know any employee in the organization and we've you know partnered with firms where this has really come from you know a group of people in a firm coming together and say we've got to do better so the reason for the structure of the book really came from the work that I've done with many companies seeing what actually works from engaging the leadership helping them build a clear narrative around the value of diversity to strategy to clear data capture and management to all the other people talent processes that need redesigning to some some instances and then that was quite clearly needed to be bookended at the beginning and the end to frame this within the larger sustainability conversation so when I knew I want the content I wanted to bring in the in the middle from the work that I've done with clients the message at the beginning which was like why this is the time why businesses have to do this now and all the events of the last year and you know, the inequalities of the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, all these things factoring into an urgency around this topic with with the call to action at at the end. So it did come together quite naturally. There there could have been a different structure, but um, as you know, you know, there's a strong sense of intuition with writing. And and this one, when I wrote it out, it came together very, very quickly. 
whereas an alternative one, which basically had a different ordering, um, it was just slower and it was harder. So that was then made the decision for me. That's a, that's a good enough reason why. That's, yeah, that's a good enough reason why. Um, all right. Well, let's go into each one of the chapters. Uh, we don't have to spend like um, any one amount of time on any one of them. Just feel free to, to 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 pick on all the key ideas of each one. But let's start with the with those first three because they, they seem to fit naturally together because they were a little bit of an introduction, but then leadership from the top as a core concept. What are the key ideas that you want to unpack there? Yeah, I, I, I think the key thing is about inclusive leadership, what that actually looks like, what are the, the real qualities and values of an inclusive leader, how do you develop those in yourself, because I, I fundamentally believe we can all become more inclusive, that is a lifelong journey, um, and wherever you are on that, you can always do more and develop more, and that is going to have real tangible benefits for your business and for your culture, so I, I wanted to sort of inspire and push leaders on that that this has to come from you and it has to be a very authentic and lived experience and you know we all come with our own unique life backgrounds our different demographic factors but also our lived experiences and all of that is going to feed into how we relate to this topic and what we think actually needs doing or not doing um, and I obviously unpack the concept of privilege Privilege is something we're not often aware of. We just live with it. it just, it's like a, a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water. You know, I, I don't know what it's, it's like um, to come from a different background to the one I've come from. I need to go out of my comfort zone to find out. And I need to do that work. And that, that is on me. That is my responsibility. And we need leaders to take that seriously. They can't just talk about this being important and then not be willing to do some of the work themselves. And so I, Put the responsibility on the sh- their shoulders, but I also and I talk about the, the, the qualities that you need to develop in your character, so your character that you're building in this, such as empathy and humility and awareness of bias and privilege. All of these things that are, are all going to feed into the later stages that come, and will hopefully mean that you really, you know, you're really living out the values of inclusion and diversity that then your team can see that. And and also you're going to be very, very willing to get things wrong because you are going to get things wrong and you are going to mess up. You've got to accept that. And this process is going to move you into it. Just the the reflection process and the exercises help you to do that too. Um, So that, you know, you've you've already started the journey as a leader before you ask the organisation to do anything, before you ask anyone else to do anything. And that is so important. Absolutely. I completely agree. But it'd be great to know for, I suppose, some of the founders that are listening, you know, self-reflections can be quite difficult, but what what can the founders do to start to educate themselves and what should they be thinking about in the early stages about making sure they're learning? Yeah. I actually outline an inner circle exercise, it's called, where I get people to think about their, the, the five people that they're closest to, not family, but anyone else, you know, your mentor, maybe your closest board member or investor or your friend, you know, a couple of friends. And I get you to sort of score them on different diversity demographic characteristics and then look at that holistically and see, you know, the type of people that are in your inner circle. And when I first did this exercise, you know, unsurprisingly, I had a lot of very well-educated women 
Um, they're actually racially quite diverse, sexuality quite diverse, but you know, we we were women within a certain age bracket and we had a certain education level. And I had one guy and I thought, you know, I want to build more balance into this. And I actively did that over a couple of years through mentors that I I I had, but I probably didn't proactively reach out to as much. And also with the boards that I built for Equality Group, which is by far the most diverse board I've ever built or ever sat on. And I've sat on a few boards. Um, but I really consciously did that as a result of that exercise. So I think that as a very practical first step is good because it gives you the data, your personal data on this, and it helps you build a, a, a more diverse inner circle so that then what you do is the conversations that you have out of that, the interaction, you, you know, there's there's a lot of learning that comes through that. And there's other, there's other sort of tools in here as well. Like I talk about doing the IAT, um, which is the Harvard Implicit Association Test, a very, very robust test looking at bias associations. And it's across all sorts of different factors. You know, you can do it on gender, race, sexuality, socioeconomic factors. And it's worth doing because, again, it gives you some helpful data to reflect upon. And it's, it's quite uncomfortable. It shows us, just all of us, how biased we are and gives us then... The, the knowledge of what we what we should be working on and where we need to open up our perspective and horizons. So yeah, there's some very practical things in here, but you know, f- fundamentally, get out of your comfort zone and put your go and speak to different people and get to know different people that you don't and under- listen to them, listen and understand their experiences. And that can be both within your company. But to be honest, if you haven't done this before, don't start with your team and don't start with your company. Go and do it with some other people first, and you know. <laughs> do the learning don't don't use your team as the guinea pigs mm, absolutely would you where would be the best time to execute on that as an exercise like immediately just just if you haven't done that just do it straight away because that that's gonna um be the catalyst for, for the, the change that that needs to happen in you and then obviously the change process that you are going to start to um, implement in your organization so one of the things that you just mentioned Epsi, is that you mentioned the data uh, a couple times in 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 what you were sharing about doing a self-audit and data is such a huge part in an organization in understanding the the context that you're operating in today and the one that you want to operate in the future maybe walk us through your next chapter which is around data management and measurement mm. Yeah, this is so important. I think often people think of diversity and inclusion as a very soft topic. And actually what we have learned through Equality Group, and, and, and we've got a great academic panel that we work with of, of social psychologists and behavioral scientists. And, and actually there's lots of really good data you can get in this area. And when you get the data, then it, you, you take it a lot more seriously. You take it as seriously as if you were looking at your sales numbers or you were looking um, you know, at your accounts. So putting it into the same remit with the same type of information that you look at for other areas of your business is, is, a, is a very positive step. Now, on top of that, it obviously gives you um, a very clear picture of where you currently are before you decide where you want to go. And, and both of those steps are equally important. So there's, there's two ways that we go about getting the data. We get the quantitative data, which is from, from anonymous and confidential surveys, and then we get qualitative data that comes from one-on-one interviews and from some group sessions that we facilitate with companies. So 
um, all of that. And then also, obviously, we can do uh, team-wide IATs as well, which are anonymized, but give you a, a sort of bias map of a whole team. So there's, there's different types of data that you can get. And the key thing is to decide what matters for your organization. Um, and if you can be sort of, if you've done some of this work yourself, you, I would encourage you to be sort of a bit braver and bolder because you don't want to be going back to a team several times within a year to ask for additional types of data. You sort of you want to communicate why you're doing it, and then you want to do it really well once in a twelve month period, and you then want to start to do something with that data and demonstrate why it matters and why it has value. So I, I've seen companies make the mistake of sort of going out once with like a shorter survey and then following, you know, that was maybe just more around demographic diversity and then following up with some sort of more inclusion metrics and people get survey fatigue and they get diversity fatigue and you don't, you don't want that. You want to just do it, do it well and thoughtfully get the right advice to do that. Um, but before you even put out any sort of survey or you hold any like listen and learn sessions or people call it all sorts of different things to get that qualitative data out. I, you've got to do the work first yourself as the leader and you've got to communicate why this matters, why you think it has value. And if you don't know and you can't communicate that, don't do this. If you don't know why this has value to your business, do not do this because you think it's just the thing you need to do or, or, or be shown to do. Because that it will, you know, it tends to backfire. People get very resentful. You've built up expectations, but you can't follow it through because you don't know how to link it to fundamental business value. When you're gathering all this data, you've gone through the life cycle with one of your one of the businesses you're working with. Is there ever a point where you can sit back and go, this has been a success? What are, yes. what are those indicators? <laughs> Thankfully, yes. <laughs> um, Yes, we have a, a very good case study, and I mention I mentioned the, the CEO in the book as well. So Chinovic is a, a Swedish growth fund, and the the CEO there, um, Jorgi Ganev, really took on board this topic about three and a half years ago, and said to his board, "I am going to do this. I, you know, I know we've done a pretty good job on the E and the G, but the S is like we've left that behind, and we want to make sure before we go to our portfolio companies and say." You've got to do this. We're, we're going to do it ourselves. And um, and brought us in at the, the early stages of you know strategy build, data collection, and then we and then education. So we ran an education series for all of their investment team and actually all of their sort of forty so staff in in Stockholm and London. And they um, set some quite ambitious goals around gender specifically. Well, gender and generational difference were the two like glaring issues initially and they, there's there's not they're now moving on to the topic of a race and further like going deeper on inclusion metrics too but the reason they're able to do that two years in is because they they hit all of their targets that they set for the first um strategy work around gender balance but it was very much you'll be like bold leadership on the topic and, and willingness to have some pretty uncomfortable conversations and, and you've got to be prepared to have the uncomfortable conversations with the majority, you know, one of the things that came up very early on um, is, you know, some of, some of the white guys just saying, like, I'm going to be really disadvantaged now at this organization. I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily going to get promoted. Is there a place long term here for me? And, and you've got to have those conversations, not just address, you know, the minority concerns. There's majority concerns, there's minority concerns. All of them have to be addressed. All of them will come out if you ask the right questions 
in, in that data gathering process. Okay. I think that that's, um, that's super helpful to, to know. Um, and, and maybe it sounds like part of that involves knowing where to, to, to stop, but also where to continue pushing forward in your hiring practices to get to that outcome. And in your next chapter, I now understand why you had it right after is, is this, is this push for how to hire better now that you have an idea of where you want to go. Maybe you can walk us through some of that. And Alex, I know that because both of you have had backgrounds in search. I mean, this is this is probably the bread and butter of of understanding, you know, finding the right candidates, setting up the right specs, speaking the right language, and then and achieving those 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 goals. Mm. Mm, totally. And this was actually the one chapter in the book that did move. It was originally chapter seven, and I moved it earlier because. Actually, I think it's just so fundamental. And it is one of the biggest questions that, that always gets asked on this topic. Um, you know, when founders are thinking about it, it's like, how do I actually find this diverse talent? How do I get it? How do I do this well? And there's so many different aspects to it. But fundamentally, you know, when I talk about data and strategy, one of the biggest points is representation, visible representation in a company at every single level as well, because there's so much great work that happens at the junior level and actually has been happening for, for many, many years. But it, you know, you, we've got a leaky pipeline issue. We don't see that talent flowing all the way through. So you, you've got to prioritize it at every single level of the company. And for, for founders specifically, you know, you've got to think about your, your founding team and you've got to think about your board, um, I'd say, before you think about anything else. Um, because if you get that right, you're going to pull in diverse talent so much more easily. People are just going to see it and they're going to want to be it. And you're going to make your life 10 times easier rather than sort of doing it later. And obviously you're going to do it where you have the most volume of hires, be more of the junior positions. And then you've got to solve for all the retention and promotion things later on as well, which hopefully you'd set up those structures well initially and then also that would go smoothly but key key concepts in this chapter are looking at some of the academic research around this so the fact you know how bias plays out um, the fact that uh, you know racial minorities um, in industries will have to do 60 percent more work to get an interview than than people with white names um, and there's been some huge CV studies done around that um, and then, you know, then looking at like anonymization as as a good as a good technique. Now that that gets harder when you're getting into senior level hires, where maybe you've only got like three or four names, and you, and you sort of you know who they are, right? You can't really anonymize. <laughs> what you've got to do there is be highly intentional and proactive. You've got to go out and identify more diverse talent, and it's going to take you longer. You've got to accept that. I, I always say efficiency is the enemy of diversity. So you've got to extend your timeline. You've got to be willing to put in a little bit more work because you're going to get the, the value and the results later on from that additional time, you know, two or three months we're talking about. But often, you know, when I'm talking with leaders, they feel like that's too long. And it's like, no, not if you're going to get all the benefits of having that diverse leadership team in place over multiple years. So it's it definitely worth doing. Um, and it was just tapping into new networks um, that you haven't spoken to before and not relying on your existing previous or your sourcing channels. Just got to do things differently. If you do the same thing, you're going to get the same results. So that's that's a fundamental principle in this, this, this chapter. If you've been getting the same type of people over a few years, 
you've got to change your process. And I talk about different ways of changing that process. This is this topic comes up a lot when I speak to the portfolio, and especially because we're so early stages. If we have if we have the founders coming and starting to look at bringing in new leadership, they if they feel there's a huge amount of pressure because this topic is such a global piece at the moment that there's a lot of social pressure, and there as a consequence is a lot of emotion attached to this as a subject, and they come to me and say. I'm stuck between hiring someone who I believe is the right candidate, but may not be diverse representation versus giving more diverse candidate the opportunity to to step up. How would you advise our our founders to look at this pragmatically in the right way? Yeah, that is such a good point, Alex. I think it's, you know, I, I hear it as the pushback of like, I don't want to lower the bar. And it's like, you need to look at your bar. Why is diversity not a key value in the bar? Why would that be perceived as something that would be lowering it rather than actually raising it? And so it's the mindset, it's, it's, it's the mindset of diversity has fundamental value to my business. I need this. I'm going to be at real risk of groupthink, affinity bias, we're going to miss things, we're going to miss opportunities, we're going to miss talent, we're going to miss markets, we're not going to innovate as much if we don't get this in. So that reprioritization of fundamentally how valuable diversity is to your business helps overcome that. Because then rather than saying, oh, either I have the best candidate or I have the diverse candidate, it's like, no, if I have the diverse best candidate, that's the very best. So it, 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 it starts with that perception and that that mindset and and again why at the beginning of the book I talk about really understanding the fundamental business value and getting to grips with that yourself as a leader because then it becomes so much easier when you're getting into hiring and saying why we are prioritizing this talent pool or these new networks in a way that maybe you haven't done before but now you're understanding the value of doing so and it means you end up reframing how you're positioning your roles and who you're going after and I think another area that also requires that reframing is like leadership potential. Like how are you evaluating for that? And I think I see a number of organizations needing to shift out of like a classic sort of command control leadership style into much more of an empathetic, collaborative type of leader, one that balances masculine and feminine traits, whether they are a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, but has a much more of a balance in their their, their value set and their capabilities and their characteristics. And that needs rethinking a lot of the time it's you know being able to interview like that is 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 quite difficult especially for inexperienced founders potentially so how how would you go about assessing that balance yes so I, i talk about how you should structure interviews and say that you know you need to make sure you're building in wisdom of the crowd into your interview process so building a good sort of interview panel that is going to be able to assess the different factors that you need assessing and thinking about values and, and, and traits and characteristics, as well as just like fundamentally, what have you done in your career, like output. Um, and making sure that you have some level of standardization as well. So again, you can extract the right data from these interviews and then look at it holistically with that different input from, from the panel. Um, and then like and reference tracking. 
So, so about soft references, you know, different perspectives from the market on an individual and how they perform. But unless you've got a clear framework for what, what really matters and what you're evaluating, then you're not going to be able to get effective soft references either. So that, that initial piece of thinking around what you're really looking for and why you're looking for it, then should inform the rest of the process. Well, I mean, you, we've covered a lot of, of the, the flow to, not, uh, to, to this point around not only assessing where you are, but uh, assessing yourself and then therefore having a starting point by which to search. But then there is the steady state. There's the infrastructure you need to set up on an ongoing basis to really keep this initiative going. And it's everything from the training to everything having to do with um, uh, policies uh, and and making sure that that it sort of the encompass that whole feeling, but one of the things that I wanted to to talk about and maybe take opportunity in this particular section is to talk about the applicability at the early stage because some of the ideas that you you share are are amazing ideas, but they might be a bit daunting relative to the size of the organization. In particular, I'm going to call out the diversity, equity, and inclusion task force, um, and you know when that is appropriate and when it isn't, and maybe mm. just playing around with these ideas. I, I know it's not the last chapter in the book, but I, I do think it's a good sort of way to conclude the, the structure of the book. Is is how will these policies, infrastructure, and ideas, and and groups fit at different stages of the company? Yeah, I think I think at the early stage, you know, founding seed stage business, um, and I'd sort of having gone through it myself, building a quality group again. Um, the, the important thing is definitely the diversity of the, the advisory board and of your leadership team. I think if you're very intentional and effectively do that, you're going to make your life so much easier longer term. Um, of course, you need to be thinking about putting in the right policies early on, you know, whether it's shared parental leave, flexible working, um, you know, having clear non-discrimination policies, just they're just like foundational blocks so that Anyone coming into the organization knows what you stand for and, and how they're going to be treated. But I think diversity of the leadership and doing that well initially is the number one thing you should be doing as a, a founder at the early stages. And that is going to, because that is going to pull in more diversity over time, because that's how networks operate. You know, whoever you are, when you fill in that inner circle, you're going to have more people like you than than other people <laughs> that's, that's what happens we all do it we all you know have affinity bias so um if you can get those different networks pulled into your company at the senior most leadership levels early on you're going to reap a lot of benefits from that so you so you were mentioning like policies and stuff from from the off so do you feel that you should start implementing a dni strategy almost immediately absolutely Absolutely. And it's not, it's not a huge amount of work to do, actually. And there's just some amazing templates out there. And I, I reference a lot of those. I think it's great because it signals your values. And values are the bedrock of culture. So unless you're clear about what your values are, then you're, you're not really going to have a very strong culture. So, so, so embedding DEI early on and having a strategy, and it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be much. It just needs to be about representation it needs to be about you know, clear and progressive policies um, and it needs to be you know these are some of the key activities that we will be doing whether it's like who we partner with um, in our supply chain service providers you know really just having that thought to the diversity of your entire ecosystem around the business 
That is, it will be self-perpetuating. After a certain point as a leader, you won't need to be doing as much of it because everyone else, it will be in the lifeblood of the company. People are like, this is how we operate because we value it and we've, we've seen the benefits of it already because it's been in from day one. I'm not sure if you've seen in in the news and on social media the um, the brew dog story that's emerged. Mm. So what do you think went awry there? Alex, you're gonna to have to tell me about the brew dog story because I haven't I'm not up to speed on what's gone awry there. Sure. So um Brewdog as a as a brand have scaled like massively, and there's been a bit of public outcry about um, the culture and how that's scaled. So this is something we see quite a lot. Unfortunately, it's come into the, the public sphere because they have such a publicly driven marketing strategy. Yeah. So James Watts come out and you know publicly uh, sort of apologised and is looking at um, what the next steps for the business are that to me symbolizes what we were talking about um, just before we kicked off about people debt. And is that something that can be fixed by putting in the right policies straight away? Or does that come in as you're more like assessing as you grow? Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just catching up this. I'm, I'm reading about, yes, this is a sort of to- toxic culture issue that's been perpetuated from the top. And you've now had a load of employees write about it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, policies are not going to solve that. Um, policies are going to be part, probably part of correcting it. Uh, but you're you've got a lot of very upset and hurt people. So there's quite a lot of deep emotional work that's going to need to be done. Um, And I I don't know enough about what has actually been going on. So I don't want to sort of comment out of turn, but there's probably a lot of responsibility that's going to fall back onto the leadership to to correct this. Um, Actually, it's it's an interesting point you made, Kepsi, about um, the maybe the two-way relationship that leaders have with with employees where things go wrong. And maybe this is an interesting uh, point to talk a little bit about that sort of circular feedback loop. Um, I presume a lot of founders are probably going to make mistakes. And it's scary. It's scary to make mistakes, right? And especially in, in any subject that is is emotionally loaded because, you know, you know, it's the word you used. And it, it, it can be even more paralyzing to take uh, risks or make change if you know that there's an emotional outcome or impact that could follow. What what um what do you recommend to set up as a as a um as a feedback loop or how how do you recommend for founders to communicate the possibility that there's a feedback loop when there are mistakes that are going to happen because you're going to make them. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think why doing this early on is so important because. When you're looking at the top of topic of inclusion, that is going to cover emotions and feelings. How, how much people feel part of the company, how aligned they feel to the values, how effective they think feedback loops are in the business, how represented they feel by the leadership. So, actually, putting in some good inclusion practices early on is hopefully going to give you the opportunity to course correct before you get some major buildup of toxic culture that results in 
you know, things hitting the press and groups of employees writing letters or mass resignations that can happen. So I think you've got to have both some regular employee surveys for few anonymized, confidential, and people really have to trust that that is anonymous and confidential because if it's not, then they're not going to be as honest as they need to be. And I think you, you need to have some sort of open door or open Zoom policy as a leader to, to hear the feedback. I think you also need to be working with a coach. I think any leader and founder should be working with a coach because that person is going to be your accountability sound board and they can also run um, 360s for you and your 360s because that's another um, you know, very, very helpful way of you understanding how you're getting on as a leader, but also how everyone's perceiving what you're doing and the direction that you're taking the company. And we you know, just being able to get this feedback earlier and then address it even if you don't want to necessarily change what you're doing, often you just need to communicate more about why you are doing what you are doing. So people understand and you take away, you know, the backroom chatter or the, you know, the suspicion that maybe there's some different motivations behind why you're doing what you're doing. So it really improves, improves the communication. At the same time, it might be that you do want to sort of course correct a little bit what's going on culturally from what's coming come up. So the more you can get that input and that data and that feedback in a few different ways, like I, I know companies that just rely on the employee survey feedback, but I don't think that's sufficient. I think you need to be held accountable by a coach. You also need to be taking this back to the board. And it's, it's a very, very important part of, of running your business. Yeah, that's that's a very good point to, to conclude on because I, I think it's, it, it's fear or anxiety should not be a paralyzing force for change. You know, it's just part of the bravery required to to make that that process better. So um, it's it's been exciting to hear uh, about the book and some of the ideas that 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 created it, and and it's amazing to see the good work. Uh, it's exciting to to get it out there. Uh, biggest, what's been the biggest uh, positive? feedback that you've received uh, or maybe not feedback on the book because what's been the positive impact to you from from since the book's launch yeah i think getting the um amazon number one bestseller in international finance and business was great i was really pleased about that because i I, you know this is a business book and i think this is such a fundamental business topic um and and it's great to see sort of that recognition and it's also just really enjoyable to get into the conversations with different types of businesses and most of my work is with finance and tech businesses but I've I've loved talking to you know some arts and creative industries businesses you know speaking um you know with the Royal Shakespeare Company you know it's just great to see how this can impact different areas of society and different organizations within society as well so yeah I'm 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 just excited to have it out there and to be engaging in the conversation and I'm very happy to hear the pushbacks as well I mean that's that's how we all learn so yeah Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Hepsi. It's been an absolute pleasure. And also, Alex, thanks for, for joining and leading the conversation. Uh, for those of, uh, of you that are following uh, on the show notes, we'll have more about the book and about Hepsi if you want to get in touch. So until <laughs> next time, guys. Bye. Bye.